This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 986, A Conversation with Jim Zub. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 986. Uh, this is a special episode as I sit down with Jim Zub to talk about many different comics, but specifically we talk about Thunderbolts and a few other things he's worked on in the last couple of years, including Conan the Barbarian. If you want to go listen to the last time Jim was on the show, you can episode, you can download episode 794 from July 2020, as well as uh, episode 368, which seems so far away now, uh, which is from April 2016, which is funny. Uh, we have referenced it on the show, uh, in this episode, I should say, because uh, that first time uh, we talked about him launching a new Thunderbolts book, and now we have him back on the show once again discussing a new Thunderbolts book. Uh, so it's exciting to kind of uh, talk about what the differences were between these two different Thunderbolts teams, because both launched are very different beasts. They are very different teams, very different kind of um, times in the Marvel Universe for them to come about. So it was a great conversation. It's always fun talking with Jim about comics, uh, talking with him about, you know, what it's like to put together stories and what matters about stories, etc. So um, I think you're really going to dig this conversation. I know I do. I did, I should say, because uh, it's always a fun time sitting down with Jim. Uh, it's, you know, it's probably, I guess, it is the last time I'll talk with uh, Jim on the uh, show. Um, so this was a, a good way to go out. Uh, every time I have someone come back now, it's the last time. And if it's their first time, it's the first and only time. Um, in terms of upcoming episodes, I'm really excited to announce that uh, in actually a week from now as I speak I'm going to be sitting down uh, to do a conversation with John Morrow from Two Morrows Publishing and I will also be sitting down with Michael Uslan uh, who's you know amongst many other things has been credited as one of the uh, you know producers of the Batman films and really uh, was one of the first major people to kind of try to get a Batman movie uh, brought to the big screen in a serious way um, I think he got the rights back in the late 80s sorry late 70s I believe or early 80s anyways we'll talk about that when I do have a chance to ha- interview him for the show so those are two upcoming episodes that I'm really excited about as we get really, really close to episode uh, 1000, which is hard to believe it's actually almost here. Um, So I think there's only uh, a few more episodes left uh, because I guess 988 will be likely the John Morrow conversation. Um, I guess 990 will likely be a conversation about Thor Love and Thunder. 992 will be the conversation with Michael Uslan. Uh, So I'll only have a few more episodes in there uh, before we hit the episode 1000. It's kind of crazy that it's coming up so fast and uh, a lot faster than I think I realized. Anyways, uh, enough about me. Let's jump right into the conversation with Jim. But first, you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again for listening and supporting the show. And let's jump right into the conversation with Jim Zub. Enjoy. Jim, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Uh, it's somehow it's only the third time. It feels like more uh, in a good way. Um, we were just talking about off podcast, but uh, it was interesting. The first time I had you on the show, I have to admit, I apologize in advance. I was less aware of some of your work at the time. I've become much more acquainted with it. Um, but a big reason at the beginning was to have you on was I'm a huge Thunderbolts fan. You're about to launch a new Thunderbolts book. And now six years later, you're about to launch a new Thunderbolts book. So, <laughs> Isn't it amazing how 
these things all come around. It's uh, yeah, lightning so, strikes twice. It's uh, yeah. it's exciting. So, it's a fun time right now. So I know that's kind of the most current thing. So I could leave that to Dan, but I feel like it's organic to kind of talk about it a little bit now. And I'm just so curious. Like, first of all, you know, you had this run on Thunderbolts. I was, I guess, one of your. Was it your first project of Marvel or the first ongoing? I can't remember now. It was my first superhero. Like, it was my first Marvel Universe continuity stuff. I did some other oh, work for Marvel. Right? Yeah, I did the Figment book. I did some ad comics. Okay. So, you know, just kind of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Nothing really, you know, prestigious, but it gets you in the system and, it, and you're able to prove yourself to, um, you know, to editors and that you can hit your mark. No, I'm curious what your feeling is on a book like Thunderbolts. Like the first time you launched the Thunderbolts and, and this one, I mean, obviously you yourself, in terms of your place in the industry and at Marvel in particular, is obviously very different because you've more than proven yourself. You've worked on a lot of different high, pro, you know, high profile projects for Marvel, so you're very much a known quantity at this point. Whereas before, it was kind of like this proving ground of you being able to work on the kind of a mainstream Marvel superhero book. So how right. do you how do you feel differently about? I mean, obviously you're going through a promotional cycle right now. You're you know, you're talking about the new book that's coming up. How do you feel differently from when you launched the first volume that you worked on six years ago? Well, you know, it's this amazing feeling because just as you said, I was really nervous and, and wanting to prove myself in terms of that I could deliver at Marvel, that I could both hit a, the marks in terms of like continuity, but also kind of craft something, hopefully, with uh, you know, some unexpected qualities and, and things that would have still have my voice in it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, Thunderbolts in in 2016 was such an interesting book because it was part of the build up to Secret Empire. There was all sorts of stuff that was happening, kind of mechanics that were happening in the Captain America book and in other places as we were doing the build up to that. And I wanted to be, you know, like a good player and make sure that I was building my piece of that larger kind of thing and so that was an interesting part as leading into an event um you know this time i've got a bunch of marvel books under my belt and i'm known really well for team dynamics it's funny that i've literally i i don't think i've done a solo book at marvel it's all been team books the entire way across like i like doing the interactions between characters i like mixing and matching different groups and and people and showing those dynamics um and now that's what I'm really well known for. And and even still, I didn't really expect that this was going to come about, coming back to the Thunderbolts, but in a very different kind of way. It's a very different looking book with a completely different cast. But I feel like there's some thematic, you know, uh, stuff that, that carries over. And there's sort of the broader idea of what is the Thunderbolts. It's been reinvented multiple times. It's gone through all these iterations. And now trying to come back to it and say, okay, what does it mean in the here and now and what can I sort of bring to the fold that's not the same as last time mm-hmm. but still you know still works in the overall kind of uh, uh, Marvel Universe and that's it's fun because it's not I wouldn't say it's a victory lap by any means I still feel like I'm proving myself all the time do you know what I mean and mm-hmm. I and I want to craft something special if anything I feel a lot more comfortable because I know my editor and I know you know the way these things work and I've got a better handle on what I like to do, particularly in the Marvel Universe, and what I think readers respond to. So instead of it being this kind of thing where I'm throwing tethers out and being like, I hope this attaches, I hope people are into it, <laughs> I'm feeling a little more confident. Like, okay, I'm having an absolute blast on this book. The fact that Sean Isaac is drawing it, and he did two fill-in issues of that first run of Thunderbolts, and he um, 
that was his first Marvel gig, and it was so good that it ended up getting him an exclusive. Wow. And so it's like we – you know, I when he went off to go do Fantastic Four, I genuinely thought I wouldn't get a chance to work with him again. I thought, well, he's out of my league now. You know, we're <laughs> not going to get to work together. And we'd worked on so much stuff together. We did, um, you know, Pathfinder together and then Thunderbolts. We did Uncanny Avengers. Uh, he did a couple issues of Avengers No Surrender. He was one of the key artists on No Road Home. And then, you know, Champions we did together as well. So it's like we have been kind of attached at the hip for the majority of his Marvel career. And then he went off to, you know, FF. And I was like, well, okay, he's off to, you know, sunnier skies and (laughs) and all that sort of stuff. I'm super proud of him. I'm super glad he did it. And then the opportunity to bring this back around and it just felt right. It was, it was a really nice thing. I know that, you know, Hawkeye is one of Sean's favorite characters and I wanted Hawkeye to lead up this team. So I kind of had my, uh, that was my secret weapon. <laughs> I actually talked to Tom Brevoort, my editor, and I said, Tom, you know, I think Sean would be amazing for this book. And he goes, yeah, well, he just finished Fantastic Four Life Story, you know, big team book with lots of characters. I don't know if he wants to dive back into that. And I said, well, have you asked him? He's like, no, you can if you want, but I wouldn't bet on it. And I'm like, oh, I've got the secret weapon, you know. And I just said, hey, buddy, I got Hawkeye. Let's do this thing. Oh, yeah, there's also, you know, a ton of other characters and, and teams. And it's going to be a, an absolute mess of work. But uh, I know you're up for it. <laughs> you know, he, uh, yeah, he jumped into the fray. And he's been doing a phenomenal job. That first issue is 30 pages. Oh, wow. And it is relentless. Uh, there's so much stuff going on in that issue. And he just absolutely knocked it out of the park. So when you're yeah. writing a character like Hawkeye, like what 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 are the biggest inspirations to who that character is for you when you start writing him? Like what interpretations or which particular versions? Sure. Because there's been so many. Obviously, he's been around for so long, and there's some yeah. very specific versions. Like after 2014, like most versions that show up are you know a remix of the Fraction version. Yeah, the Fraction esque, you know, Fraction and Aja stuff. Um, and I've definitely got a piece of that in there for sure. You know, that's part of his modern identity. But I really loved you know West Coast Avengers, mm. and I loved this. He was still scrappy but he he was much more confident you know what I mean Mm -hmm. he's always been like aspiring to be a a better leader but never quite you know reaching those highs and kind of lets his emotions get away from him I think that that's been a relative constant um true that that, you know if uh I don't know how else to put it it's like he he knows the right thing to do and sometimes he slips you know but that's more like us like I love writing Captain America and Steve Rogers is you know the paragon right but it's kind of fun to write the people who don't always hit those highs but keep striving along the way you know and I feel like Clint is one of those characters he's just so wonderful in that way and he's not going to give up and he will go as high or as low as he needs to go to get the job done you know what I mean Mm -hmm. Uh, which I find really enjoyable and then the whole cast honestly like Monica Rambeau man I love that character she was so great on the Avengers in the 80s when I was reading it and um, you know I I remember buying her first appearance which was in an amazing Spider-Man annual and just being blown away by how cool she was and how amazing a character you know and that power set you're just like like, oh, she turns into energy. You're like, all right, that is uh, my my young mind cannot handle. That is so cool, you know. And she's been a leader multiple times. And so putting both of them on the team is a wonderful dynamic where 
she's not going to play second fiddle in that sense, but she also doesn't necessarily want to be the leader. Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to read Devil's Reign Omega, but um, spoilers, uh, she gets offered the Thunderbolts team before Clint, and she turns it down. So Luke Cage wants her to head up the team, and she's like, I will not do that. I'm not going to be putting myself out in the public square that way, not interested, not going to be part of your, you know, this circus you're putting together, this media circus and all this stuff, because it's very public-facing, and it's part of the New York, you know, Mm -hmm. police system, essentially. And um, that's the way we ended it in Devil's Reign Omega. But obviously she shows up in this new uh, Thunderbolt series. So people are going to have to read that first issue to see how she ends up getting recruited anyways. Um, I'm really, really happy with it and how that's all coming together. And then the rest of the team as well. There's a really fun kind of lineup. You've got Victor Alvarez, who's the young uh, you know, guy who's taken the mantle of Power Man. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed right where you've got Luke Cage as the mayor of New York City now. <laughs> and he's got a vested interest in making sure that the name power man doesn't get wasted True. and so he's like all right get this kid in there you know he needs a, a place to go and let's keep an eye on him and, and make the most of this you know what i mean oh, for sure. um yeah and then we've got um uh persuasion the purple girl which i know is an odd choice but <laughs> whenever i can sprinkle a little bit of alpha flight canadian goodness in there i gotta do it right so Absolutely. uh when we put together the team concept, I wanted it to be very siloed in the sense that because the Thunderbolts have essentially been assembled by a PR team, not by Clint himself, mm. um, their roles are very distinct. So you have like the muscle, you know what I mean? And you have like the, the um, you know, the energy projector and you've got all this. So we needed a mentalist because that's what you need on your classic sort of team lineup. Mm-hmm. And I wanted something a little bit different. And all of a sudden, uh, as Tom Brevoort and I were going over people who were in New York, because we wanted to be this New York based team. And they're the, the only official team in New York, you know, based on the laws that the Kingpin passed that, that you can't be costing vigilantes running around or anything like that. Um, all of a sudden we remembered that Carrick, you know, Kilgrave was in New York. And I was like, oh, that'd be fun. Particularly since the Purple Man was a villain in Devil's Reign. It's like, this is a good little kind of spin off of that. She's got to essentially try and, you know, she can't hide. Her skin is bright purple. (laughs) So if you're going to be associated with the Kilgrave name, why not try and redeem it? And that's, you know, part of a broader theme, right? Is uh, we talk about redemption a lot. And I think that that's a core theme to Thunderbolt as a whole. Mm -hmm. That regardless of whether they are, you know, the the first iteration of the team, whether they're villains pretending to be heroes who realize some of them want to stay heroes, like maybe this is the right way to go. There's a redemptive angle to it. There's obviously a redemptive angle later on when you've got, you know, the prisoner kind of class, like Luke Cage is leading that team, or even Norman Osborn, you know, leading that team. There's this sense of, can they actually be a force for good, regardless of all the corruption and things that are going on around them. Mm-hmm. You know, when I had Bucky leading the team, there's a redemptive sort of angle to it where he's like, look, we're all terrible, broken people, but we're going to fulfill the obligation of like Nick Fury's old man on the wall job and try and keep Earth safe no matter what it takes, you know? And so that's kind of the through line is redemption. And Clint is on this redemptive arc. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to read Hawkeye Freefall, but uh, Matt Matt Rosenberg absolutely put him through the gears, which I loved. I thought it was great. And Otto Schmidt's artwork is stunning. And it's like Hawkeye does some bad stuff in that book. And he sort of 
pulled downward by it. And so I wanted to sort of see if he could kind of dead cat bounce, like see if he could make <laughs> make something more of himself, you know, and try and bring himself back. And like he thinks to himself, okay, the last time I was a good guy, good guy, like doing things and I felt right, you know, he's going through a sort of midlife crisis, like mm-hmm. West Coast Avengers. Let's get the team back together. So in the first issue, he's actually trying to recruit the old team. And then this Thunderbolts opportunity comes up and it's like, well, it's not the West Coast Avengers, but it ain't bad. You know, <laughs> let's give it a shot. And of course, it all kind of starts going wrong almost from the start. And and it's got this real hard on hard on its sleeve kind of quality to it. Like the way I pitched it to Tom and CB was essentially like Avengers by way of Ted Lasso. Mm. Like you've got these characters that are struggling internally and externally. Uh, they may not be the right people, but they have to learn how to try and be those right people. Mm-hmm. And there's a, they've got a lot of you know internal problems, and some of that's going to flare up, and some of it's going to kind of come crashing together in really fun and interesting ways. And then you put that up against something like you know the fact that they are a part of essentially New York City's budget. So now they have this administrative quality that they've never had to deal with before. You know, you don't just have to stop criminals. You've got to literally do press scrums where they get to berate you and ask you questions about why you're doing it the way you're doing it and and how it all went down every single time. Plus, you've also got budgetary bylines and all these kinds of things, a PR team and, and just all this stuff that, you know, Clint's not used to dealing with and Monica doesn't want to have anything to do with and, and it all kind of folds out from there. Which yeah. interesting that you mentioned before the idea that, you know, redemption is kind of the core trait kind of a deep down inside the Thunderbolts DNA. And it is interesting mm-hmm. because more than most teams that exist in the Marvel universe, this one doesn't really have a membership constant. Like it does, not in the, no. not in the same way, like that we're used to seeing from other teams like Avengers, etc. Like there right. are some characters who have definitely been long standing members, but they're not integral necessarily to the book or even the core concept, which is so right. interesting. And I, I love the that original team lineup. I had an absolute blast writing them. Like Moonstone is genuinely one of my favorite characters because she is so evil and manipulative and awful and and selfish and you're like those are great characters you put them in the mix and stuff happens you know what i mean uh i love songbird i like uh you know fixer like all these characters are really really fun and they were great to play with but it's like the way this organically kind of built out of devil's reign you know in devil's reign the kingpin has the name thunderbolts and he's using these criminals and deputizes them and makes them his kind of, you know, uh, strong arm uh, when he's controlling the city. And so once he goes down at the end of Devil's Reign, it's like, well, legally, the Thunderbolts are still the only superhero team that's that's allowed to be in the city. It's going to take a while to untangle the legal mess. The quickest way to fix this is to just make a new Thunderbolts. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so Luke Cage has led the Thunderbolts in the past. Clint has led the Thunderbolts in the past. Great. They both have a vested interest. They've got skin in the game. They want to redeem that name and make it worthy. And now they have a reason to, you know? So it all kind of built organically from there. And when I looked at it, it's like, there's nowhere to fit those original team members into that concept. Like, it's got to be something different. You can't just say, yeah, and we'll throw Moonstone in there. You're like, no, no, they're trying to get away from criminals. They're trying to redeem (laughs) this name. There's no way that they would put 
you know, Carlos Sofin in there. There's just, there's just no way, right? Like as cool and fun as that dynamic is, it's not going to work. Okay. How can we, you know, have some of those other kind of elements maybe appear later on, but at least out of the gate, the Thunderbolts team is built on this PR kind of spin of, no, no, this is New York's team. You can trust us. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now working with Sean, I mean, obviously we've seen some of the kind of the promotional artwork and seeing like his design on Clint. I love the kind of remixing of the kind of classic concept, uh, but still making it look new and fresh. It's just such a great design. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny because we were pretty under the gun to get that first issue started, and so I said to Sean, don't worry about doing costumes for everybody, just do, we've got two new characters we need to design, and Sean's like, you don't want new costumes? I'm like, no, I do, but, like, you don't have time, and he's like, no, we have to, we have to, like, <laughs> that's, particularly Clint, he's like one of his favorite characters, he's like, we've got to hit the ground with new costumes because that's how you really brand the book, this is a nice place to jump on with these characters, here's their new adventures, you know what I mean? So. Sure. And two characters like um, both Persuasion and America Chavez, one of the things I love about them is that they don't have a constant costume. Like America Chavez, as long as she's got the red, white, and blue and stars initiated into her fashion, it's her. And so Sean's been having fun with that as well, how to sort of remix her up every kind of mission and whatnot, which has been great. And Persuasion is putting herself out into the public square like, no, no, I'm... I'm a good person, I'm a celebrity, I can't hide, so I won't try. I'm, if I'm going to have the spotlight on me anyways, I might as well be everywhere. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And so she's very fashionable and very doing magazine spreads and perfume ads and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. And so, again, we're getting to play this kind of fashion angle, and Sean's really leaning into it in, in all kinds of fun ways. And what's it like writing a character like Monica? Because she's an interesting one, because she's been around a long time, but oh, I would yeah. say up until... 2004 or whenever Warren Ellis kind of used the character that she kind of drifted away from kind of mainstream and it hadn't been used that much and then ever since Next Wave I think she's much more in the public consciousness and obviously now the character's in the MCU so there's a lot more there as well so what's it like kind of tapping into her character? Well, I wanted to make it clear that she is, you know, she has been a leader she's very capable but she's also built up a lot of detrius like she is cynical Mm. she's cynical about the world she's cynical about heroism she's cynical about being out in the public and and she's not cynical about being a hero she knows what is the right thing to do she's just cynical about everyone's reactions to it do you know what i mean yeah and the fact that this thunderbolts team has to have such a public air and and do so much media spin that turns her stomach like she doesn't want that to be you know, being on the Ultimates was great because she could save the universe, and whether or not people ever knew it didn't matter because mm. she was doing the right thing off in whatever dimension or whatever place. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And now this is like, no, 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 you got to be smiling for the cameras. And that is sort of antithesis to the way she thinks this stuff should be done. Mm. And yet she feels a sense of obligation to Luke Cage. She feels a sense of obligation to America Chavez and Clint and, and doesn't want to see this thing fail. She just wishes she didn't have to be in the thick of it. Now, obviously, America Chavez, you know, is much more well known to not just comic book fans now because now she's been in a movie. Uh, right. Do you, do you, when you're writing the character, do you hear that character, that, that version of the character, or does it still have her, her own? I mean, the, the MCU version is so different from the way she's been portrayed, sure. really, in in you know Young Avengers and stuff like that. So I'm definitely leaning into you know the the Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey stuff more. Okay, um, that's kind of my that's my North star in terms of how she functions in this book. Um, 
And and one of the things I like about her is she's an absolute freaking powerhouse, <laughs> and she's worked with both Clint and Monica before on different teams. And so I love the fact that they everyone knows what she's capable of and is used to just sort of pointing her at a problem and being like destroyed. Like <laughs> you can literally send stuff to other dimensions. You can literally fly and beat the crap out of things and you're nearly invulnerable. You're our heavy hitter. When things go down, we just point you at the problem and it goes away. But what they don't realize is if people have read America Chavez made in America at the end of that miniseries, she is much weaker than she was before, and her powers are on the fritz. Mm. And she does not admit that to anybody. So now you have this dynamic where they're like, oh, don't worry, America's got it all taken care of, and she secretly doesn't. That's a lot of extra dimension right there. Oh, yeah. And so all of us, it's like, it's like saying, hey, don't worry, we've got our home run hitter. And they're like, uh, I got a cramp? Like, you know, I don't know. I can't do this. And, and so it's this awkward thing where, you know, she, she's got hubris. She, she feels like she should be able to handle this stuff. And she certainly doesn't want to admit that she can't. But very quickly, it's going to become apparent that this is not the America Chavez of old. And how do you sort of come to terms with that? In a public and private way, you know what I mean. And then, how do you find like what? Where is your inspiration coming for the take on the new Power Man? Because he's actually been around a while. Like I think it was yes, Shadow he's Man. been on a slew of teams. Like yeah. he's this interesting character who has been kind of slotted into multiple roles. I used him briefly in Champions, even. That's right. Um, and so I feel like Victor is this go getter and eager to find his place and and kind of hungry to prove himself and he's constantly never feeling like he's quite found his his niche you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and and somewhat regretful of the fact that for he is in luke cage's shadow you know he's got the moniker but but do people think of him as power man or not you know what i mean and that's the problem is that he wants to come in like a house on fire and just totally crush it and that's going to be his sort of problem is no there's no lack of desire but there's like a lack of okay, kids, slow down. You can, you know, you got to think this one through. You're not going to necessarily knock it out every single time. And as he has his first few setbacks in our series, he kind of has to question his place and purpose, and you know that that, that the power is not enough. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. It's interesting because it almost sounds like that's almost been the writer's conundrum with using the character as well. Like, it's sure. like everything you've said about how the character is dealing with like being in a shadow, not being that, but being something similar and kind of trying to find his place. I feel like writers are still trying to figure out kind of who he is and what he can be. And it's really interesting to kind of see that development kind of, as you said, kind of it's become part of the character as well as kind of maybe the, the behind the scenes machinations of trying to figure out who is this new character that we can use. Because as I said, he's been around over a decade, but it hasn't really right. had a, a staying presence yet. He has had a breakout in that sort of sense. You know, it's funny because there is a sort of meta element to all of this, right? Mm-hmm. You've got a character like Clint who's sort of questioning his place and questioning his value and wondering, you know, if he still got it. And, you know, like any writer, I sort of think to myself, oh, is this my last shot at doing <laughs> some crazy cool Marvel thing, getting to play with the toys? You always wonder that, you know what I mean? You always wonder when the phone's going to stop ringing and all that sort of stuff. And then there's some meta commentary around where people are literally like, do we need a new Thunderbolts team? Do we need this sort of stuff? Because I know that that's 
what the readers question, you know, and retailers, they're sort of like, do we need another Thunderbolts book? You know, do we need this? Is this what we want? And I'm sort of like front loading it. Like, I know you're asking that question. Let me prove to you why we do. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Let me prove to you that we can make this entertaining and surprising and that you can do the remix, that you can do an unexpected take on this sort of team dynamic. And hopefully it grabs people and is as much fun, you know, to read as it has been to put together. Because honestly, it's been genuinely one of the most fun books I've, I've ever worked on. Um, and the first issue, I feel like, is one of the strongest superhero scripts I've ever written. And it's like, we've got so much good momentum in that issue. And we set up the ingredients. It's a great jumping on point for new readers. Even if you don't know any of these characters. And even with, with the MCU stuff, that seems unlikely. But regardless, mm-hmm. you could jump on that book. There's a sense of continuity. They tell you where they've gone before. But you know what they need now. And now let's go. You know, we, we've got this real burst out of the gate that I'm really proud of. The first mission that, the you know, uh, Clint's Thunderbolts have are to round up Kingpin's Thunderbolts. So it's like Thunderbolts versus Thunderbolts in the first <laughs> issue, which I think is really fun. And you get to play the differences and contrast those teams against each other. And it's just an outright bonkers brawl. Um, you know, and one of the people on that team, one of the people on Kingpin's team is John Walker, U.S. agent. And Clint hates him. They hate each other's guts. <laughs> and so right there, there's another wonderful little bit of interplay that we were able to build up and pay off. Absolutely. Now, you spe- when, you, when you're speaking about you know having fun and having fun with what you're writing, I'm curious uh, what the process was like working on Avengers Tech on Avengers, because that was looks like a complete blast. <laughs> that book was so wild. Um, so, you know, Tom Brevoort is a big fan of, like, old-school Japanese anime and, like, Sentai stuff from the 70s. And we've had multiple conversations about old-school anime and stuff because he knows I'm a big fan of those things. And I've, I've traveled to Japan literally 12 times. And I love the country and I love the pop culture and all that kind of stuff. And so... On top of that, you know, I used to work at the Udon studio, so we, I did a lot of business with Japanese, you know, companies and pop culture stuff there as well. And of course, CB's got a background. He's, uh, did a lot of the Asian licensing stuff before he became, um, you know, editor in chief at Marvel. And so, we, we, we all kind of know each other in that way and we know that our love of that stuff. And so when this, uh, partnership opportunity came up with, uh, uh, you know, Bandai to make this kind of funky Iron Man Avengers like everyone every Avengers has their own power suit Mm -hmm. and they were going to make these highly highly detailed articulated toys and all this stuff they were just looking for a really fun kind of over the top take on on an Avengers story and they had the broad kind of beats like here are the main concept ideas but they weren't sure how it would all fit together dramatically and and how they would you know bring in all these villains and stuff and so i got brought in and just kind of leaned into the sentai aspect of it and tom and cb and the bandai crew were really happy and then i knew who the perfect artist for the job was uh this guy jeff cruz who goes by the moniker chamba in his artwork he does this colorful animation inspired art his stuff's super dynamic super explosive and i'm like this is the guy he loves drawing that stuff in his free time like sentai stuff and 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 obscure and funky japanese stuff all the time anyway like i can't see anyone else doing this and tom you know bring a new artist in for a a a complete miniseries is a bit of a tough thing and i said just let the guy do a test page and literally 
uh, Jeff's test page is the final page of the first issue. That's how good it was. Oh, really? It sailed right through approvals. Bandai's like, yep, that's the guy. <laughs> and we were <laughs> off and running. And so uh, the book was just a ton of fun. You know, it's out of continuity. It's its own self-contained little thing. It's it's corny and ridiculous and over the top. And I leaned into a lot of those Sentai kind of ludicrously dramatic takes and big action set pieces and that's that's what drives that stuff and so I just kind of went for it and we had a ton of fun everyone was you know Bandai was super super happy with it and the re- there were some readers I think who came in and they were like oh Jim's back on Avengers oh. and you're like yeah this ain't Uncanny Avengers and this isn't <laughs> this isn't No Surrender and that's okay you know what I mean like mm-hmm. you gotta come in like this is this is bubblegum we're just gonna really you know make this thing pop and be wild and colorful and, and ridiculous. And the characters are still the characters. Like they follow their personalities. They're just this tuned kind of heightened quality where they're going to be a little more dramatic and a little more intense and a little more, the scenarios are a bit more ridiculous. You know what I mean? And that's, that's kind of what I really enjoyed about doing with it. And thankfully everyone like on the creative side Tom knew exactly what I was going for and that that first script came in and he was just like oh yeah <laughs> like this is that's it feels like one of those TV shows you know it feels like Power Rangers on, on you know turned up to 12 or whatever <laughs> and that's really what I was going for with it so it was a, just a real joy uh, to put together Jeff's an absolute rock you know he j- didn't just draw it he colored it all as well so he's cranking out you know a monthly book all the artwork and uh, and made it look beautiful, and and there were whole sequences where I knew he could deliver on the kind of cosmic crazy power splendor, and I just like let him rip. I was just like, okay, they're all firing their cannons. I don't have to tell you how cool that is. Like you know how cool that is. And so he just uh, went nuts. And Bandai was so happy that they've been using a lot of the panels and pages uh, in their advertising for the toys because half the stuff looks like cover quality because it's so illustrative and over the top. And uh, one of the other things I did for that book was I wanted it to be real locations as much as possible. Of course, because it was a Bandai partnership, they wanted it set in Japan. And I'm like, great, no problem. So I got to kind of do this greatest hits collection of fun locations in Tokyo and Osaka and uh, Kyoto and all these different places, places I've traveled to, places that people will recognize and, and just amp them up, you know? Like, what does it look like when the Tekon Avengers are fighting a giant symbiote kaiju in the, in, the, in the middle of Osaka in front of those famous you know billboards and neon lights like how, you know and the Dotonbori and all that sort of stuff like let's do it like let's just go for this stuff and uh, Jeff took it one step further and remixed all the classic ad signs these 20 foot tall um, billboards and turned them all into Marvel in jokes oh really you know? And so instead of the the famous running man, they've got Quicksilver and like, you know, there's like all these little jokes. There's a thing that I've been doing in a bunch of my comics where I'll introduce tons of little in-jokes and and Marvel trivia stuff. In my original run on Thunderbolts, we talked about Four Bush brand beer, like it was a thing. (laughs) And I think I've used that three or four four times. Whenever someone's ordering a beer, it's always like, oh, I'll have a Four Bush or whatever, you know. And... (laughs) And so there's a four bush billboard, you know, uh, and stuff like that. Just, yeah, having fun with it because that's what that stuff's got to be about. You've got to have, you know, put 
joy into it, and I think readers really respond. Oh, for and sure. so uh, it's just been yeah, that book was just a, a ride. It was uh, it was a real real trip. I don't have the toys yet. They've been out for a little bit, but I've still got to get some here. I'm not generally a toy collector, okay. but those things are so beautiful. These die cast metal, like I don't God knows twenty plus points of articulation like they're highly highly posable and uh they with a whole bunch of little accoutrements that you can make these incredible scenes with them so they're quite a quite a thing no i don't think i realized until you mentioned it but uh bachamba did all the colors on all the on the entire book as well yes yes wow that's and that's why it looks so good because that's like He's drawn some books before and had other people color his stuff, and it looks fine, but he knows his own line work, and he knows what to leave out and mm. take to the color stage. So a lot of the energy effects, the elemental stuff, he's used to doing that in the color stage anyways. So if you look at his pencils, they're very thin lines. They look almost like an animation drawing, like a 2D animation drawing. And so there's not a lot of tone. There's not a lot of... In some cases, not a lot of backgrounds. And so you'd look at the pencils, for lack of a better term, and you'd be like, oh, there's not a lot there. And then all of a sudden the color comes in and you're like, oh, this is like a rich, full experience. Like I'm watching stills from a movie. Wow. Yeah. So I have to ask about a, a book that uh, I actually reread to uh, to prep my, for today because I did enjoy it so much, which was your recent uh, Wolverine book, um, Life of Wolverine, on, in, oh, cool. which is the Infinity comic. So first yes. of all, it's so much fun. It's really well done. Really, uh, thank you. A, a great, um, a great way of doing it because I, I, I hope so because it almost killed me. <laughs> I, well, I, and I could imagine. And I was reading it. I was like, this is this is really hard because you have to yeah. figure out a way to kind of chronologically make his life make sense and all these disparate stories pull together a narrative thread that makes sense and find out a, a way to kind of have an overarching narration that will somehow pull it together in a way right. that doesn't feel like a Wikipedia article. And yep. that sounds awful. Like it sounds like <laughs> so. Mark Basso, he's in the X office, and he deals with the the mainline uh, Wolverine book. And he was the editor on you know X Lives and X Deaths of Wolverine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've worked together multiple times. He's wonderful. He was my editor on Conan. He was my editor on the second Figment miniseries. He's done all sorts of great stuff at Marvel, and he's such a like a cheerleader. Like he really goes you know like uh, one of the most positive people i've interacted with in the industry and so he sends me this email that's like oh we got this unique project and i didn't read it closely because i was just that day i was getting so many emails <laughs> and it said basically like oh we're going to tell these stories from wolverine's past and i thought he was saying to me pick a couple moments for like famous wolverine stories and we're going to sort of like drill down into them and so I just emailed back and said, of course, man, I'm totally up for it. No problem. Uh, I'm really interested in, like, World War II, like that, the, the you know, the Jim Lee uh, X-Men issue with Captain America and all that stuff. And I would love to do some Madripoor stuff. That would be great. And then I go off and I do some other stuff and I check my email and Mark goes, I don't think you understand. It's everything. <laughs> And I was like, what? And then I read the original email much more closely, and I went, oh, God. And so we jumped on a phone call, and I was like, dude, like, what? How are we going to do this? And he's like, I you know, I know you love continuity, and, and you love these characters, and I feel like you've got to take. Like, I don't know what that narrative hook is. I don't know what that – how to bookend it, essentially, or how we do this, but mm-hmm. I'm confident we're going to figure it out. And I was like, that is a hell of a challenge. Um, and we did it, you know, like I read God, almost 300 issues of Wolverine appearances 
and uh, and that was not everything. That was just trying to hit the high marks, you know. Oh yeah. Um, and taking copious, ludicrous amounts of notes and screenshotting as much stuff as I could from these PDFs. Like, I think, oh man, uh, uh, Drew, our assistant editor, he probably sent me 10 gigs worth of PDFs. Oh God. <laughs> and so I threw the, the Marvel intranet or whatever. And so I was just reading and reading and reading and reading and trying not to skim too much because that's when you miss those cool bits and so I'm screenshotting everything I'm taking copious notes and then I'm starting to figure out this broader framework and one of the the challenges was is that Mark said you know this is sort of reestablishing some of the continuity of Wolverine like we're not making big changes what we're doing though is we're trying to thread narrative that has been implied and we're going to be more implicit mm-hmm. and I was like okay and he goes and the most difficult part is we're trying to you know update it in terms of Marvel time like obviously you know Wolverine can't be running around uh, uh, in the 70s with Carol Danvers because Carol Danvers is not 70 years old you know like mm-hmm. like that doesn't we're you know 60 or whatever that doesn't work so we have to sort of uh, kind of hand wave some of these these areas and and it's interesting because it's like the longer Marvel time goes the more mysterious time there is for Wolverine True. because now all of a sudden I've got Vietnam is pretty set and then he does a bunch of covert stuff and then he pops up again you know five years ago or ten years ago or whatever and all of a sudden it's like wow so what has he been doing since Vietnam to whatever 2000 something you're like what do you want to have them do like cool stuff secret stuff let's do that and so it was this fun challenge of not ever um getting rid of anything but just sort of recontextualizing it and sort of saying okay this kind of stuff happened around this point in time and this definitely happened before this other event and now we're going to start to see these larger patterns and so each chapter of life of wolverine was a challenge for me to go what is this section of his life about? Mm. Is it about the man versus the beast? Is it about a lack of control? Is it about people manipulating him from the shadows? You know, is it about this growing fear of mutant kind? Like, is it him trying to prove himself in all these systems and realizing that he doesn't function within systems? Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. and, and before he finds his found family with the X-Men. Right. You know, once we hit the children of the atom, once we hit giant size X-Men number one, in some ways it was like the pressure was off because so much of that is is all well chronicled. And I could just sort of cherry pick the the coolest bits that made sense. But it was all the pre stuff that was like, oh, my God, there are dozens and dozens of stories (laughs) that are kind of shotgunned across time. And some of them fit well together and many of them don't. Yeah. And particularly when they would start to, you know, retroactively change stuff. So you've got something as simple as, you know, the the famous origin miniseries where they reveal that, you know, he grew up in the late 1800s and all this kind of stuff. But also the bone claws, you know, they would do stories of his past where pre-adamantium he didn't have any claws. But he did have claws. (laughs) retroactively so I'm like why isn't he popping those out so then we found a framework where it was like because his mind was like Swiss cheese and he'd been manipulated so many times he would go through periods where he would literally forget that he had them he would just be 
you know, a gun for hire and an agent and, and, and all the soldier. And it was like, he knew he, he was tough as hell and he knew that he got over his wounds faster than other people. And he just kind of kept going, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that was sort of a fun challenge where I was like, nothing's out of play, but how can I make it feel cohesive that you believe it, that you believe, yeah, this is the story, one story of a man, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that was hard. And in particular, some stories I'd never read before. Like there's a really funky uh, four or five part story um, that Jason Aaron did in the Wolverine solo series where in the, I want to say the 20s, late 20s, or early 30s, Wolverine joins um, Raven Darkholm's yep. band of, of criminals in Kansas City. <laughs> and they're, they're running, you know, guns and gangs. And I was just like, What? Okay, cool. I can incorporate that. That'll be fun. You know, there's a one-off story where he's captured again and thrown into a circus. And I was like, oh, that's easy. I can attach that to mm -hmm. symbolically. We can attach that to the Weapon X program and things later on. Like, that's no worries. Like, mm -hmm. And so it was neat. It was like this puzzle that I was trying to fill in some of the pieces, but always leaving open areas that you could still drop in new stories of Wolverine's past in these big areas and it would all work, you know what I mean? And then finding things like uh, Wolverine's in that that um, Web of Venom one-shot that Donnie did called oh, right. Venom, and it's like <laughs> the symbiotes, you know, are, are, are being experimented on in, on soldiers in Vietnam, and Wolverine ends up there in Nick Fury, and I was like, yeah, I can make that work. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it became this fun thing. You know, when, when uh, Mark, my editor, put together a list, he had a list of... I think it was something like 15 or 18 scenes that had to be in there. And some of them are brain damagingly obvious, like fighting the Hulk for the first time and mm -hmm. joining the X-Men. And, you know, he gets his adamantium and the Weapon X program and all this stuff. And then there were a bunch of it would be nice bits if we could find ways for those to appear. Mm. And I think that list was like 40 things. And I put almost every single one of them in there, and I added a few more of my own. And Mark was like, this is nuts. Like, this is great. I'm so glad I picked you. You were the right guy for the job. And, you know, I know you have scars by the end of this, but, man, what a fun, cool thing. And to really kind of, even though you are re-threading other people's stories, kind of putting your mark on it and, and seeing these bigger thematic uh, ideas that, that define this character and make him important that I could send this 10 part series to any freelancer and go read this and you'll understand Wolverine you know yeah well, that's, that's so. a good point right I mean it works so well in that way that you don't need to know that much you really do get everything you need here I, I two questions that come out of this though is there not kind of a, a you know an unofficial chronology of Wolverine at Marvel like did they have sure and, and, and I used portions of that but one of the difficulties is, is that you've got some stories that um, had never been like there's there, there is a chronology per se and the Marvel wiki and all that stuff super helpful True. but sometimes there's just big gaps or because one story was done way earlier they're like yeah these stories all take place in World War Two, and you're like yeah but which order are they in and how do they refer to each other and sometimes those are um they conflict okay like 
because, you know, editors, people are imperfect. And so people make mistakes and they reference something that now couldn't possibly have happened in that order. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or they just forget that another story was published where they said something a little bit different. And so one of my jobs was to kind of iron out some of those weird bits or to just sort of even sometimes (laughs) this sounds like a real weird thing, but sometimes your job is to point out the incongruity Mm. and to make it a mystery instead of a continuity problem. Do you know what I mean? You're creating an element of a no prize in there. Like you're you're sort of like if you you reverse engineering a a no prize. (laughs) Yeah. If, if, you know, Wolverine's past is a mess and he can't trust his own memory. And then he says, I don't know how I got there. But suddenly I was there. I was doing this. You're like, oh, he's being manipulated. But the real reason I say that in the story is because it doesn't make any sense. Because because that story couldn't possibly have gone down that way. Right. So, uh, yeah, he doesn't know either. So, you know, that's cool. That's our our kind of fail safe in that broader kind of way. Mm -hmm. Um, I forget what writer. It might have been, I don't want to attribute this to someone if it wasn't them, but I want to say Peter David, he had this amazing uh, lever that he pulls from time to time, and he he's talked about it during an interview, and I laughed so hard, and I'm like, I have to be careful not to do that very often. Not that I think Peter does either, but what he does is if he really wants a character to act out of character, he has them internally say, I don't normally do this. <laughs> <laughs> So if you need a character to suddenly be a coward, they're like, what am I doing? I never run away. (laughs) And then they run away. (laughs) And you're like, wow, that's a cheap shot. I love it. You know what I mean? Like, you don't want to push that button too many times, but uh, that's kind of awesome. You know, like, uh, okay, that's that's one in the toolkit that you hope you don't have to use very much. Like, that's sort of like the, it's real broken. Let's try and just get the pieces back in place somewhat and keep going, you know? I mean, obviously, coming into a project like this, you're you're pretty you know, aware of, of the work and the that's going to be involved to a degree, and how much research is, there's going to be. Did it still blow your mind a little bit just how much retroactive continuity has been built into this character? I mean, oh my god! Oh my god! It's so crazy. I, there was a moment where I was laughing because I realized in the last chapter that we would not be able to reference. Sorry, we reference it briefly in the te- in the, the narration that Wolverine literally goes to hell and fights his way out, yep. and it wasn't important enough to show up in Life of Wolverine. <laughs> and I was like, isn't that crazy that this character literally was dragged to hell, and I can't fit it in because there's too much other stuff I got to hit? <laughs> like, what? That there's that much material, that there's that much craziness, that Wolverine has done that much and been on that many teams, mm-hmm. that I couldn't reference half the teams he'd been on, that I couldn't re- – we didn't talk about the fact that he was in – like we mentioned he's in the Avengers, I think, in the narration. Okay. Like, dude was on the Avengers multiple times, yeah. multiple ways. We just, like, hit the fast-forward button and we're like, yeah, House of M happened, you know, just like, okay, good enough. But as you said, um, it, it makes sense because there's more of a, you know, collective, everyone's kind of like, oh, he's on the X-Men now. X-Men yeah. stories happen. Okay. Like, it's easier. Right. It's, it's the solo stuff, which is, you know, more intrinsic and oh, more. Oh, yeah, just monstrous, too. And, you know, the 90s feel like they go down a memory hole. You're like, yeah, he had the animalistic stuff and... <laughs> Uh, he was the herald of death and uh, and then you just sort of get through the 90s because some of that stuff's just 
It's not great. It's sometimes. something. It's something. I read all of it. <laughs> and very little of it survived to the page, which tells you how much of a, an impact it had on his ongoing, you know, narrative. So, um, I appreciate that it's there though, because that, that's oh, the kind yeah. of the nice thing, right? Is that like, there's a lot of, you know, warts and all kind of history of Wolverine and stuff that I totally. don't like to think about, like the bandana, the animalistic, the sure. loss of nose. Like we make yeah, fun yeah, of all it. That stuff. It's not the, great, but it's still part of the tapestry. And there's still like, I started reading comics when that happened. Like my first right. issue of uncanny X-Men that I started buying myself was, you know, the first page is like, Wolverine has no nose. And Oh, you sweet summer child. You came in so late. Oh, I know. My gosh. I know. It's <laughs> awful. Like my, my brother's first issue of uncanny X-Men was 141 days of future past. <laughs> well, Talk he might have, he had a better experience than I did then. Um, but it, it, one thing that's taught me about learning, like when I started reading comics at that period, is that really anyone can can start reading at any time, and oh, they'll, yeah. be, they'll be fine. Like I think people stress yeah. a lot about you know the, the new reader new and number they ones and yeah, they won't understand what's going on. I'm like I started I reading loved that about the comics when I collected Amazing Spider-Man. My first issue was two thirty one, right in the middle of a storyline, a oh, yeah. whole bunch of ongoing subplots. It's not even a. a, a a seminal issue, but it was like, oh, this is the guy. I love the cartoons, and yeah. I want to read this. And because it was two thirty one, I was excited because I knew I would be able to get the new ones moving forward, sure. and I could go back. I could dig through, you know, back issue bins and fill in all the gaps. And then when the official handbook of the Marvel Universe came out, it was like gold because books that were up on the wall that I would never be able to afford because there was no trade paperback program or digital. Mm-hmm. I could fill in those knowledge holes and be like oh that's what they were talking about you know in that old issue or whatever and and because it was written in this encyclopedic format it made it feel like it was a cohesive yes thing that had clearly been planned this way all along and essentially that's what life of wolverine is is pretending that it's always meant to be this way absolutely that this is of course the way the character's narrative would go because it's not 40 different writers throwing in ideas it's the life of a person right for sure and so that was where one of the things i enjoyed was looking and realizing there was a lot of repetition a lot of writers fall back on tropes for the character or Mm -hmm. certain types of threats or you know the wolverine's gonna love him and leave him or he's gonna be the the father figure to some young girl or like over and over and over again and in some ways that became part of the writing where you were like no, he falls into these patterns because it's part of who he is. It's not just a trope. Mm-hmm. It speaks to a greater pattern of his own struggles. His struggles to, for acceptance, his struggles to realize that he is worth being loved. And I know that sounds weird when you think of a character who's all you know violence and rage and all this other stuff, mm-hmm. but it is part of it. And that there is a romantic angle, you know, in terms of the love and the loss and the pathos of these characters, right? Okay. The way that he wants to mentor people and essentially try and steer them away from his own kind of life and then begrudgingly if they realize they have to become hard like him he's going to try and at least protect them through it you know those are things that happen over and over and over again in wolverine stories and so i just put a lampshade on it and say this keeps happening and again and again because this is who you are and because you're nearly immortal with your healing factor Mm -hmm. you find yourself in these cycles, these cycles of regret, these cycles of violence, these cycles of love, these cycles of, of, you know, animalism, like all these things keep happening to you and you can't escape them because most people would be dead. And so I just, I basically said, instead of 
trying to ignore the pattern, I will make the story the pattern, you know? And that's once I unlocked that, it, it weirdly became a little bit easier. That makes sense. I mean, it was interesting reading it again, kind of all at once, and be like, you know, realizing as you said, like how many times this guy has been manipulated and like and worked on, and you're like, oh my god, like I kind of forgot about all of them. And when you kind of take them in like these ten issues and you read it all at once, you're like, this this guy is never caught a break. <laughs> like this right. has been awful. Well, and that that should be true of every Marvel character. Like how many times has Spider Man fought Doctor Octopus? If you counted them all, true. it's ludicrous. <laughs> but you don't. You just sort of say he is one of your greatest villains, and here are the most poignant or difficult. He tried to marry your aunt. He tried to, you know, <laughs> he took over your identity. He formed the Sinister Six. Like these are the important ones that stand out, and the rest of them all kind of merge together, right? That's the way that stuff works. You don't count Christmases or presidents in Marvel stories because the madness will creep in, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. So I have a question. So uh, a character that is retroactively quite intertwined with Wolverine is is Romulus. Um, oh, Romulus! We had so many conversations about Romulus. <laughs> but like, so I feel like this is a blind spot for me because I remember about that. You know, he was being kind of woven in, but I wasn't really paying attention at the time. So I'm reading your book, and I'm like, oh, there's Romulus. There he is, and then he's just not there anymore, and I can't remember the conclusion of the Romulus story. Well, I think it, so. You've got the narrative angle of it, and then you have the behind the scenes of it, right? Yeah. You know, Jeff Loeb wanted Romulus to be like the ultimate. He was going to be Wolverine's Doctor Doom. He was going to be the character that defined and was the dark mirror of him, and all this sort of stuff. And readers didn't seem to take to it that way. They just sort of were like, oh, it's another guy with claws, you know, like, <laughs> and, and it's not to say he was even a bad character, but it just didn't have the, the impact I think that they wanted. Mm. And then other writers were coming in on the X-Men and they were leaning away from that sort of stuff. And Jeff's story got diluted down to such a point that all of a sudden Romulus was just another guy, just another villain. And yet they had made these overtures about him being part of these shadowy forces or being at the heart of these shadowy forces Mm -hmm. and so i didn't want to ignore that completely but i wanted to sort of hand wave some of it in the sense of he's one of these shadowy forces and he's important in the sense that he's a named one but he's not the one and there may never be a one it might be a series of shadowy councils and organizations and clandestine operations and governments that all kind of everyone wants a piece of Wolverine or everyone wants a piece of of what he represents which is this ultimate killing machine you know Mm -hmm. and that's what Romulus wanted Romulus wanted to become the ultimate kind of killing machine and all this sort of stuff and so I felt it was important to acknowledge it but there was no way that I could make the character more than what he became so in some ways I tried to um, just slot him in a proper place of yep he's one of those people Hmm. and there are other people too and you don't know who all of them are because you know your memories have been smashed to bits okay so I have a question about just in a general kind of uh, mechanics question so I mean you've talked about you know kind of the research all the things you guys wanted to kind of include all the seminal moments you wanted to somehow have represented I'm curious about just in general how you write a script for an infinity comic which has an infinity scroll so it's a very different I would imagine approach to its typical comic because yes. you do have some kind of page break so to speak but there's a lot of kind of 
elements of the image that kind of spill over as you kind of scroll below. So I'm curious how you wrote your scripts and how, uh, like, what kind of collaboration did you have with your artists to kind of make this work? Right. So the way that we did it, it was sort of the, the chapters are relatively short, you know, as far as that stuff goes. Um, the, the way it ended up working out was you would I would write somewhere between 15 to 20 panels worth for each chapter. Okay. And they were sort of big moments. And I would say to the artist, uh, Ramon Box, I would say you can break this up into multiple or you can merge some of these together if you feel like you can fit all these visuals into one panel or or whatever that might be you know what i mean and some of them ran a little bit longer and some of them were a little bit shorter but somewhere between 15 and 20 pictures worth of information um you know over half of them were direct panel pulls where I said, this is the visual and we can show up from a slightly different angle or we can zoom in on a particular bit, but this is what's really important or this is the costuming or this is the era we're talking about. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then it was just threading that narration. And as I had the narration down on the page, but then when we'd get artwork, sometimes I would fill in a little bit more. I'd realize we'd have a little bit more space to play with it or the way it would reveal as you scroll, we would space out little bits of information or dramatize it a little bit differently. And so the lettering process became that much more important because you're trying to figure out what is on screen at any particular point. And if someone scrolls into this, cool bit of violence or or interesting sort of revelation where do we put that text is it like text build up some anticipation and then whoa artwork or is it cool piece of artwork and then the text kind of anchors that moment Mm. and you can kind of do either thing with it you know it's like you have page turns almost every panel which is which is fascinating so you know it's a it's a different sort of feel you're not doing a page as a unit that the reader can look at all in one go you're sort of isolating these individual moments and in some cases trying to figure out how to create parallels between them so that the artwork feels like it's moving you know and and sometimes it's obvious where you're like okay a character's jumping or dropping or moving vertically and other times it's like this sort of staggered staging diagonally or other things like that that we were doing okay the, the the last issue has I would say like almost the most intense kind of amount of images on the screen, partially because yes. you have like this kind of flood of Wolverine images and uh, of memories. And so I'm curious, what kind of directives were given to your artists there in terms of like which costumes you want, which the kind of you know moments? Because there's so much there, and it it's so interesting to kind of scroll through it because it really does feel like. You start off with a few images, and then there's just like this deluge as you're inside this memory, and all of it's kind of being relived all at once. And then finally, you get down to just Wolverine's face as all of it's kind of swirling around him. So I'm curious what that was like, even kind of directing, like, what do we want here? Which versions do we want? Are there specific yeah. versions? Like, how did how did that go about? It was just such an interesting kind of multi-page splash to look at. Yeah, you know, the, there's the, the scroll of sort of the loves of his life, you know, as we're going down. So I picked out a bunch of different women who he's had, you mm-hmm. know, uh, long and intimate relationships with. And some of them aren't even like, you know, love and marriage. Some of them are just like the closest of, of friends who know you as well as you know yourself kind of thing. And then it was like, okay, let's do this journey. Let's get as many, 
you know, iterations as we can in there. And like you said, I want this deluge of concepts. And so we had the advantage that I had been compiling costume ref for every issue. Mm. And so I just said, as much as you can get in there, you know, go to town, like get <laughs> get their fighting, they're, they're scrapping their whatever. The hardest thing was for our poor colorist. Oh God. Uh, I think that was Java Tartaglia, man, that guy, you know, just figuring out which one goes with which costume and how it all needs to fit. That was just crazy. And, uh, definitely the assistant editor was a huge on that where he's pointing out specific bits and, Hey, make sure this is colored properly. And, Oh no, that's part of that costume. You know, like <laughs> just, just wild stuff. And, uh, everyone, you know, put their all into it. And that was really important to me. And this, the last moment I, you know, one of the things I said to Mark is I don't want it to just be like the clips episode of a TV show and everyone goes, yep, okay, we know, and then they carry on. I said, there has to be some lasting effect. And so I said, Gene's got to keep those memories because he needs someone to know what he knows and she's the only one he trusts. Mm. And he bounced that off the rest of the ex-office and they said, okay. I love that you have Gene like with just like with the tears running down her face. Yeah. Like that's where really I guess sells that moment. Like like she, like, like no one's ever really going to know him but her now. And right. no no one like the, the way that you know the most fully anyone could ever know someone she knows him and she's like offering to you know to take it back so that she doesn't maybe know it all words and all and he's like no you're you're going to keep those memories you're going to keep them safe. Like that is quite an emotional beat. Yeah, and I was really really proud of it. Um you know Mark like I said really fought for that bit and felt like it was a good it, that, you know the digital comics they have to be in play they can't just be off of siloed in their own thing do you mm-hmm. know what I mean if you want readers to care then you have to make it worth you know reading and that's not to say that every it's fun to have little one-offs and things like that and and lord knows I love, love those kind of stories as well but if we're saying that this is supplementary to X lives and X deaths of Wolverine then let's do that let's actually have something valid in play there you know what I mean um, and and um, the one thing so Mark came back to me early on when I pitched the, the story I had an idea that Gene was going to be ghostly like in some of those panels like she was going to be experiencing it directly okay and we tried it out a little bit in the first chapter and we realized it was really distracting that you're like, I don't want to see Wolver like Jean with claws cutting people down, thinking that she's <laughs> Logan. Like it's just we're losing him for this this bit of kind of this magic trick that we're doing. Yeah. And it's like her voice should be involved. She's definitely seeing these things, but we don't need to like where's Waldo her into all these panels. Like that's not that's not doing what we want it to do. Mm. You know? Yeah. Right, it would have been distracting from the kind of the main emotional beat. Yeah, yeah, where it's like, you know, like, it's, because then it becomes this weird thing of like, okay, if Gene is physically, and I'm using air quotes, physically there, it's like, like, is she there, like, for everything? Like, some of, you know, some of this is intimate, like, like, that's weird, why, (laughs) well, don't show her in those panels, but show her in these other ones, you're like, meh. Let's just not. Let's just not. Let's keep it focused on him. And we make it very clear that she is seeing and experiencing it, but it doesn't have to be, yeah, this weird sort of thing that we're slapping in there or, or adding to it in that way. And so, yeah, I'm really happy with how it turned out. Um, I know they've printed some of the digital comics, 
it would be fun to see a print version of this at some point or see it, you know, sure. in some way. But, but uh, you know, we didn't build it for that, and that's cool. Well, that's what it's I like nice about to, it. I like it when the, yeah. these these infinity, sorry, infinity books really are, you know, using the mechanism, and so they shouldn't yeah. be something you could just print. Like, then it would feel right. like, well, it wasn't special. Like, there's something, you designed it for this scroll. And yeah, it, we did, yeah. And, it, you know, it's this different experience. I remember I talked with... Uh, Pat Olaf about doing um, the, um, the motion comics and the guided view on Edge World with Chuck Austin, and he was saying like, and just you know, he the way they developed page turns was so different because it was really panel turns for them because they knew right. that people were going to do the guided view, so it allowed them to do kind of jumps that you wouldn't normally have if you were just looking at a page, and when you have a printed comic, you just you can't stop people's eyes from darting around. But if you're in guided view, you can control that tempo, and yes. you can actually surprise people. And I found that's what you know. You and I, I kind of mentioned off podcast, but Kelly Thompson as well. You guys seem to use this format maybe to the best I've seen it in terms of really oh, kind thanks. of pacing it out really well and kind of giving you surprise. And you know, really, as you said, there's so much work that goes into where to even put the narration. Where is it going to have the bright beat? Um, so I really, I really appreciate that because it feels like. You know, you're making it special, and it's not just a print comic that happens to be, you know, available in this different format. Yeah, and and you know, to me, there's, I'm sure there's panels in there that I had conversations, long conversations with Mark about that are really inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. Where I was trying to wrap my head around a certain little bit of continuity, or is this worth mentioning, or what does this mean in a broader structure? And we would laugh at points because we're like, people are just going to scroll past it. And we're like, but we care. <laughs> and that's really important. You know, I I love the Marvel Universe. I love the continuity. And I know some writers, it's not that they hate continuity. They just don't want to worry about it. And they feel like, if I need guardrails, someone will tell me. Otherwise, I'm just going to drive. You know what I mean? And it's like, that's cool, man. You're a writer and you want to flex your muscles or whatever. I feel like you can do both. I feel like you... And I get so many ideas from the continuity. When I read the old stories, I think about what that means as a pattern or as a larger structure. And it, it gives me more to play with, not less. I don't feel like it closes down options. I feel like it opens up you know, doors or whatever other analogy I could use. Um, it, does, it, does, it's, it does speak to you as a, as a reader and a fan, just in, in general, enjoying continuity, though. You know, there are people yeah, who I, shy away from it, and it sounds like you kind of run into the fire. I do. I, I, you know, I. it's sort of this weird thing of also treat others as you want to be treated. Mm. Like, if I was the writer of one of those old stories, and I felt like I'd done a good job, I'd want someone to acknowledge it, Right. And so when I make stuff in the Marvel Universe, it's, I don't think it's selfish at all to say that I want people to acknowledge it. I want it to be part of – that's a brick in the wall of the House of Ideas. Mm-hmm. You don't have to use it all the time, but it's there, you know? For sure. And so I try and treat other people's stories the way I want them mine to be treated. Like if I make a new character – you know, when I finished up my run on Champions and – um you know, uh, Vida Ayala was coming in to do the next one. She was doing the, um, oh crap, I forget what it was called, that event where they passed the law that kids weren't allowed to Outlawed, be super Outlawed, yeah. Um, the only, I didn't tell her what to do because that's not my place and I would never do that and no editor is going to let me do that anyways. But I sent her a really encouraging message and I said, the only thing I would really like is please don't instantly write out Snowguard. Like, mm-hmm. we made this new Canadian superhero, this indigenous hero. Um, and one of the things I wanted to avoid was there's this cliche of 
superhero or superhero team goes to foreign location, meets foreign superhero, and then leaves, and foreign superhero is just sitting there in stasis until the next time people go to that place. Mm. And it's like, I don't like that cliche. She's joining the team. Okay, she joins the team. She's on the team. Like, add new members to the team, figure out a way if you really want her off the team, Mm -hmm. but don't just, like, hand wave her out, because she deserves better, and and the characters deserve better than that. And Vita completely agreed and kept the character around. And it's like, I don't need her to be a main character, I don't need you to do huge plot lines, just don't pretend it didn't exist. You know what I mean? That's all. Uh, That's, it's the the, the slightest modicum of respect, that's all I need on that, just... (laughs) don't say that my stories never happened right and so i try and do the same kind of thing and sometimes you know more more often it leads me to better ideas and really fun little bits of dialogue particularly when you can point out that a character's done something like this before or they have experience in some area and you can put a button on it you know there's there's a great moment not a huge spoiler but like you know Clint's doing his first press scrum in the Thunderbolts book coming out, and one of the reporters just asks him about, didn't he just rob a bank? Because he robs a bank in the last issue of Hawkeye Freefall, and he's on security camera robbing a bank. And it's like, yeah, they're going to ask him about that. That's funny. This guy now essentially has been deputized as a cop in New York City, and there's footage of him robbing a bank. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like that's an awkward little bit isn't it you know and so rather than me pretending like oh this is annoying I don't want to deal with Hawkeye the criminal I'm like no I totally want to deal with Hawkeye the criminal <laughs> how do you round that you know what, what are we going to do around that like how's the PR team going to deal with that that's fun like I find that a really fun kind of funky challenge right mm-hmm. you know and that was the same thing when I when I did Thunderbolts my first run on Thunderbolts the last story that they'd done with um with Bucky Barnes was that Nick Fury man on the wall stuff that really wild surreal run that um, oh yeah uh, who's the writer crap it's around the tip of my tongue anyways they did this real surreal take on on this trippy kind of of uh, secret agent cosmic secret agent kind of thing and Nick Fury essentially saying you have to pick up this role and you have to save Earth no matter what and I was like well that's technically still his mission all right, well, he's going to incorporate that into his new mission, into the, you know, and that's why saving and protecting Kovic is extra important because he's been manipulated as a weapon and he knows what that's like. Mm -hmm. And he's got this bigger, broader goal of, I got to save earth no matter what. Well, this all works. Let's just go, you know, like that's how I feel it should be. Um, is, is, you know, we carry the baton for a time and but the baton was handed to me and those that when you hand it to me that's all those past stories that's all that fun stuff and i don't have to use all of it and i can de-emphasize or re-emphasize different aspects of it that i feel are important but it but none of it's gone yeah you know yeah well i like that as i like the idea of there being the you know the golden rule for comic book writers as well yeah yeah that's how i feel about it and when it doesn't happen a tiny part of me dies, you know, like, <laughs> when, when I see a character I use, uh, I don't want to call it specific creators cause I don't think it's intentional and I don't think it's malicious, but like I, you know, I do a real, what I think of as a pretty deft little bit with a character. And the next time you see them, they're like just one note or they're not 
referencing or, or dealing with any of that. And I'm like, oh, sad trombone, why? You know, like, <laughs> I'd have done it if it was me, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of the time, most people are pretty good about it, you know, and that's, or, or I can point someone towards something. I was talking to um, a writer about an upcoming project they've got, and they just offhandedly mentioned that a character I've written multiple times is showing up. And then she says, yeah, and they're going to meet so-and-so. And I said, oh, they've already met. And she goes, what? And I said, oh, no, they've met. I did it. This is where it happened. And she's like, oh, crap. The way I wrote it, it's like the first time. I said, is that done? She's like, no, it's just getting drawn now. I'm like, let me send you those issues. Mm-hmm. And so I sent those issues along, and she was really thankful and able to make some you know, dialogue adjustments so it all kind of works. That's good. But you don't normally get that benefit. You know, no. you don't luck into yeah, that's that kind right. of bit, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think my so. my favorite, I guess, meta commentary on something like that was at the end of the the uh, the Gwenpool ongoing when she was saying goodbye to oh, who was a Baytrock, and it's like right. you're not going to be like this next time, you know, like, <laughs> right? And which is so true, and like I love yes. the way that Baytrock was written in that book, and it was really like you know it was just a different version of that character. It doesn't invalidate how he's been written before, but it sure. added a new dimension. And this version I really right. liked, but I like that you know it was the sadness of Gwenpool to know. Because she's the meta character, that yep. you're not going to be this way anymore. And, and if we see, if we see each other, you, it's it's not going to be the same. And like, it's not yep. going to be the same. Like, that's very both poignant and you know, calling out a meta textual commentary on what's what it's like to work in comics. Yeah, absolutely. I was one of the reasons why I like those kinds of characters. I did a um, two parter with Deadpool uh, in Agents of Wakanda, and um, I wrote some insane meta stuff in there. Uh, some of it got cut <laughs> because it became it was so wild that that editorial was like we're getting away from the core plot of the story like mm-hmm. this is still a Black Panther book you know what I mean I was like right 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 yeah I know I know but I I did have some pretty funny spots like one of the things I leaned into and I think in the final version I'd have to reread it a little bit of it survived into the final edit but Deadpool references the fact that at that point in time you know, Deadpool's uh, movie is out, and so is the Black Panther movie. <laughs> but they're not together. You know, they're not in the same universe or whatever. So Deadpool's making these comments like, I didn't even think this was possible, you know, like <laughs> kind of stuff like that. Like, I should really talk to Kevin. We got to do this more often, you know, like stuff like that. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I do have to let you go, but I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention that. Um, so obviously a few years ago Marvel got the license back to Conan which is now actually gone again um, sadly (laughs) in the time since we've talked it started and stopped yeah which is sad but uh, it's interesting because like I I never really had much experience with Conan comics Um, when Conan was coming back I was really excited just because like well maybe this is a good jumping on point now that it's you know back at Marvel so I read Jason Aaron stuff and then obviously you came on you also did uh, an arc on Savage Sword but then you were the main runner writer of the main Conan book and I gotta say I loved your work on the book. Um, oh, thank it you. made me more interested to go back and actually start picking up the epic collections of Conan because it was a world I never really knew about. And I like Jason Aaron stuff, but your stuff somehow spoke to me more. So I just oh, wanted thank to thank you, you for that. That means that. a lot. I, uh, character means so much to me. 
Well, and it felt like that, right? And I know we'd spoken about it kind of briefly before, but, like, you know, every page just kind of felt... Well, first of all, I think you really got the overall kind of tone of kind of overwriting on purpose, if that makes sense. Like, I don't mean it in a rude way. Yeah, no, the flowery kind of punchy prose, that's me trying to channel, you know, uh, the great, you know, like, obviously... Like, I want it to feel like the original prose, and I want the Robert E. Howard kind of feel to it, mm-hmm. but it's also a little bit of that Roy Thomas kind of, of soaring narrative that I really enjoyed from the comics, and that was what my watchword was, was like, I'm not going to be Roy Thomas or, or, you know, Robert E. Howard, but what if... What if I just did the best damn version of that I can? Like, what if I... That's what always spoke to me about those stories. Mm-hmm. And so I really tried to drive into that as much as possible. Um, and just tell the kinds of... You know, it's funny. People would say to me, they're like, oh, I don't think I could dig into Conan. You know, I don't know where to start. And I'm like, people dig into Batman and Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And those... It, Conan, in some ways, is even more... Uh, a great descriptor a friend of mine uses. He calls it a procedural character. Oh, so 100%. When, yeah, when you watch, you know, Columbo or Matlock, you're not watching to see those characters change. What you're watching is to see the character put up against, they're put into an environment and how they respond in that environment, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and they're not allowed to change. You know, it, it, a lot of other characters, whether the superheroes have the illusion of change, but they've always got certain core traits that, you know, hold through. But they still have relationships and stuff like that. Conan is far more procedural. You're like, Conan will always be Conan. The only thing you need to know is if he's in his youth, if he's in his prime, or if he's the king. And that's all you kind of need to know, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's a matter of put him up against something we haven't quite seen before. And even if it's got a bunch of the tropes, give me some nugget, some bit, some visual that I haven't quite seen before or some sort of threat that feels unusual and exciting. And that was really... It's a challenge because you get a character with hundreds and hundreds of stories. True. But when it worked, man, when I when I felt it and I was like, oh, I've never seen him do this, and yet I could see him doing that. And you pitch it past, you know, Conan Properties, and the gang over there is super enthusiastic and can't wait for you to do it. And you're like, I am writing the original sword and sorcery character. I'm at the same time I'm writing Dungeons and Dragons. Like in terms <laughs> of comics, I'm at the top of the fantasy mountain. Uh, better enjoy it because it ain't going to last. Like this is crazy. So your yeah. last issue, so issue three hundred. Um, yes. First of all, I love that story. I loved uh, having you know Conan and I don't know how to pronounce your name. Is it Bellet or? It, it depends on who. It's usually Belit. Yeah. Belit. Okay. I do like when they you know are fighting against other versions of Conan. So I loved seeing Conan against King Conan, and I love the oh, yeah. the, the end of their interaction with the <laughs> idea that you know the King Conan will yield because he's smarter, he's more right. traveled, right? And the younger version is like I would never yield, and then like decapitates him, which was yes. shocking but exciting. Um, you know, such such a great issue and a great end of the story. And I liked how it ends where the whole idea that Conan asked that question of you know were they a reminder and a warning? Perhaps, perhaps not. Only the gods know, and I like that kind of open-endedness and the idea that it could be right. anything. The other thing that meant a lot to me, like, so, you know, the meta context is I was supposed to have a longer run on Conan the Barbarian, and then COVID happened. Like, mm. COVID stopped our production in its tracks, and I had one issue come out pre-pandemic. Mm. And so, you know, bucket list book for me, and we're in the literally one chapter into our I think two issues came out but one during the pandemic two parts of my first story arc on this 
bucket list book and it's and I don't even know if it's going to come back I don't even know what I don't know if the industry is going to survive I know that sounds hyperbolic but you know for a, a few months there it was in doubt like we did not know how this was going to you know how retail was going to function how any of that stuff was going to go right oh, for sure. if, if stores were going to survive if publishers were going to keep publishing and all that sort of stuff and so for months I was kind of twiddling my thumbs and it was like I, I've been told pencils down I gotta wait and see if I even get to finish writing these arcs and then you know we came back and it was like okay we're in production again but uh, you know it's more finite than we had hoped, right? Mm. Like we, it's it's more like we're heading into sunsetting the book rather than just continuing ever onward. And it's like okay, like I you know I accept that. I'm glad we're able to do what we're doing and we're able to plan it out and know in advance that that's what's happening, right? Like better that than cutting it off completely and not even finishing the damn thing. Like that would have just been heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And the last line that Conan says, the very last line that I've written of the character, is him standing with Belit. You know, uh, like you said, it's you know, is that our past or our future? And he's like, only the gods know for certain. And then he says, we cannot fear what has been or what may never be. All we can do is fight on until our stories end. Right? And it's like that's true of the pandemic. That's true of life. That's mm-hmm. true of legends. Right? Like. I fought on on that book until my story ended and then I had to wrap it up and that's the way it goes it doesn't matter if you're Stan Lee or Dan Slott or mm-hmm. any you know creator no matter how long the run goes at some point it comes to an end when you wrote and, that line like, did, you, did you did you pump the air did you like you punch the air like that's the line like I'm I knew it had to be poignant and it's weird to sort of <laughs> when I do my story breakdown I'm like, you know, and big finish, like emotional finish. And then you're like, what is the emotional finish? And it's interesting that I, whenever you finish a project and you write those last little bits, you do have to do this little moment of, is that the one? Is that mm. the right? Do I feel it or am I still grasping for it? And that one, I kind of hit it. And I was like, no, that's how I feel. Every Conan project has been a gift because I never thought I would ever get a chance to write the character. And the first time I got to co-write him with Gail on Conan Red Sonja, it was like, this is my only chance to ever do this. Or so I thought. And so you put your all into it and it gets done and you're like, wow, what a gift. That was great. And then Conan's coming to Marvel and Tom says to me, hey, we want to make a big splash with the character. I know it sounds crazy, but we want to put him in the Avengers Weekly event. And I was like, oh, my God, I get to write Conan again. And I'm like, if I was a fan, I would I would hate to see him mix it up with superheroes. So I got to make it worthy. I got to make it, like, right. Like, I got to do it. And so I did it and just wrote it to the walls and tried to make it as cool as possible. And, and came up with that plot point where we're going to dump him in the Savage Land at the end. And then I was going to pitch them, like, hey if you want to bring on the Marvel universe, I could do some stuff. And they're like, Oh, we already have that lined up. Like as soon as that plot point came into the outline, we already lined up this book called Savage Avengers. I was like, cool, damn, you know, (laughs) okay, good. And you know, Jerry did a wonderful job on it and everything else. And then I approached Mark Basso and said to him, I, I, you know, they were doing the two books, Conan, the Barbarian was being done by Jason. And then Savage Sword was, uh, Jerry started it, but it was a rotating cast of creators. And so I contacted Mark and I said, I have a selfish request. I have not written a Conan story solo yet. Everything I've done has been co-writing. 
I got to get this out of my system. I need to have a, a Conan solo credit, like my ego. Like I, I just, <laughs> I just deeply want one. And I got a Conan story idea that I've been hanging on to for years, and I didn't think I would ever get a chance to do it. And now I feel like I can do it. And that was the gambler. That was this Conan in this gambling hall where you could lose your life and everything else, and he's going to fight, you know, everything and everyone, and be put in a situation where he can't just cut his way out until he can. Um, <laughs> And that was sort of my mic drop. That was like, that's what I think a perfect Conan story is. Not because it's perfect, but because it has all the ingredients. And it's got a little bit of a turn. We put him in a scenario where he can't just punch someone out. He's got to kind of play against type. And that's fun and exciting. And then we got to design this card game and like all this cool stuff. And Pat Zerker drew the hell out of it. And I was like, done. I got Conan out of my head. I'm done. I don't have to worry about ever doing Conan again, not because I don't want to, but because I've said something that I feel is intrinsic about what a good Conan story is. And Conan Properties agreed to such a point that they thought of that story as essentially an audition. I didn't know Jason was going to be wrapping up his run on the book. And all of a sudden now I went to from being like a guy writing a Conan story to I was their front runner. Hmm. And they contacted me and said, you know, we're, we want to do this crossover story. We'd love to introduce these other Robert E. Howard characters. So I put together the concept for Serpent War with Solomon Kane and Dark Agnes and James Allison from, you know, the, the literary canon. And I sent that first script in, and then they offered me the flagship book. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and I didn't say yes in the moment, believe it or not. Um, I was terrified. Uh, they offered me the book, and I was co-writing Iron Man at the time with Dan Slott. And so I said, I need to extricate myself some, from some projects that I've already lined up because i got to give this space because if, if I do a bad job on this, I'll never forgive myself. And so it took me like a day and a half to kind of clear a little bit off my plate, and then I called them back and said, all right, I'll take it. So... Well, I'm glad you did take it because, again, it was such an enjoyable book and it was a, it was a fun romp. And uh, yeah, no, I, it's I'm proud. I probably displayed it on my shelf. It was a, it was a lot of fun. Awesome! I'm super proud of it. I'm super glad we got to do it. Whatever length of time I had the book, it was precious and and really really proud of the whole team. Everyone put their all into it. You know, everyone was rocking it. Corey Smith, in particular, on that last arc, mm. he uh, it's funny, he's not a sword and sorcery guy at all, <laughs> and yet he was so, after one issue, he was hooked. He was like, oh man, I love drawing this way more than like buildings and cities and well, for sure. technology. <laughs> he's like, give me jungles and monsters anytime. I was like, right on, let's do it, you know. Awesome. So I know that Conan's moved on, you know, from Marvel. Um, and I, you know, I'm hopeful it would be nice to do more stuff in the future, but I'm not, I'm not going to sit there and, and, and pine endlessly. Cause that's not healthy. It's like, I had a cool run. I got to do cool stuff, you know, um, and, and the future will bring what it's going to bring. And that's the Conan property guys. They know me well, they know I love this stuff and, uh, they've got my number. So we just sort of take it from there. Yeah. I'd be interested to see where Conan reappears. Yes. Well, Absolutely, Jim. Thank you so much for taking so much of your time today. It's uh, been a pleasure, as always, to talk to you. And uh, as I said, I really 
I'm a big fan of your work and excited to see what Thunderbolts is like. I've always been a big fan of that book. I just got the second omnibus uh, recently of uh, the original stuff. So um, it's awesome. Which is yeah. It's, well, I never thought some of that stuff would get collected. I had all the the soft cover versions, but uh, now right. I'm finally going into the stuff that's never really been recollected. Uh, that was only in singles, which is nice. So I'm excited. And so as a as a longtime fan of the Thunderbolts, really excited to see your second take on the book. Right? Lightning strikes twice. I'm going to try and make the most of it. I mean, I feel like in six years I should just bring the podcast back because you'll be writing it for the third time. <laughs> I, I'm up for it. I'm up for it. <laughs> I, uh, I love these characters. I love playing in the sandbox. So thank you for having me. Thank you for, you know, the support and the enthusiasm. It just reminds me why I do what I do. Absolutely. Well, thank you again so much. Take it easy.